as if. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of As If, the podcast all about Clueless, where we talk about Clueless minute by minute. With me today, I have two guests. First, I have Shannon. Hello, Shannon. Hi. And I have Phil. Hello, Phil. Hello there. Now, this first minute begins with the Paramount logo, the uh, stars dancing over the water as kids in America bubbles underneath, and it finishes with Cher sitting at her vanity. Uh, telling us that she lives a pretty normal life for a teenager. Now, at the very beginning here, the only credits we get are Paramount Presents and then a title card saying Clueless. No directed by, written by, no stars, names, nothing like that. That's because it's a documentary. <laughs> I don't understand what you were expecting. Now, it had its it had its origins as a television series. No, didn't it? They made the it television didn't? series after the movie, and it was a bomb. No, no, no. They were they were originally planning for it to be a television series, and it got changed into a motion picture before Fox let it go. So they had prepped it as a TV series, and then they were like, wait a minute, this would make a better movie. Yeah. They were right, because the TV show is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think it's appropriate to talk about in minute one. I think part of the reason... I haven't seen that much of the TV show, because why bother? I've really only seen clips, but it's worth mentioning that Alicia Silverstone is like an unmatched presence in this film it's hard to imagine anyone else playing Cher because she's so funny and obviously she's incredibly beautiful too she just completely embodies this lifestyle and this character this film basically has the setup of introducing you to through a weird kind of like mtv montage um <laughs> introducing you to uh, a bunch of kids Rich kids live in a lifestyle that I'm going to guess most of the people in the audience, you know, probably weren't living and making you root for this person. And I think that's like kind of a it's an interesting way to start the film of basically saying, look at this rich, beautiful young girl. But you're going to you're going to sympathize with her and you're going to follow her on this kind of I mean, I don't know. If she, I guess she does grow a little bit in the film. Uh, it's like follow her on this journey of becoming a better person. Um, but they oh, definitely. they start from a position of essentially someone who I guess most uh, these days, if there was a film that started that way, it would be like a one percenter and they would want you to hate this person. It wouldn't be a sympathetic like starting position. Can we talk a little bit about wh what an unusual film this was when it came out? It was there was nothing like this in theaters at the time. It was this movie was revolutionary when we went to go see it. It came at a really strange time in in American movie history. Uh, there weren't teenage movies being made like this, and there certainly weren't teenage movies being made about the upper middle class from a sympathetic point of view. Yeah. Definitely not from a sympathetic point of view because obviously this movie gets lumped in with Heathers a lot, although they could not be more different oh, no, 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 in no. tone. Yeah. 
but the girls of Heather's are also eating like pate and caviar with their parents while they play croquet. But they, right. unlike Cher and her friends, are, I mean, with the exception of Veronica, soulless. <laughs> right, right. And this is a movie that presents characters who up until this point would have been the the snobs in any yeah. teenage movie. Yeah. And makes them the sympathetic central characters. And that's a really fine line to walk. Yeah. I'd also like to point out, I was about to say this just before uh, Phil brought up that great point about what a unique movie this is. That, you know, as Darren said, maybe Cher doesn't change that that much through the course of the movie. But I think it's important to remember that she is either 15 or 16 years old. She's a sophomore in high school. Yeah. And the movie starts at about the beginning of the school year and ends at about the end of the school year. So for the seven months or whatever that the movie covers, she definitely makes a lot of personal growth. Oh, certainly, certainly. And I'm going to say, like, in, later on in the film when she's talking to a different character, she does she states that she's 15 turning 16. So they, oh, they, right, because she tells yeah. Ty about their birthdays, yeah. Yeah, so... So um, she's 15. Can we quickly talk about what a brilliantly subversive intro this movie has? How it presents itself with that weird logo and those bizarre sound effects, <laughs> but it also presents the Muffs cover of Kids in America with a strange, like, dis th that's not the actual intro to the song. The intro to the song just begins with the guitar. Yeah. They've layered on this, like, score. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Beep! This like <laughs> so there's this sort of the first 10 seconds of this movie you could be in a horror film you know what this movie needs like a grease style cartoon intro exactly it's got you know what? And like sound effects i would say actually that montage of Cher and her friends almost is a grease cartoon intro because like you see all the all the characters but like nothing happens but that's what's brilliant yeah. that's what's yeah. so brilliant about this is that montage, and you know, I'm going to give the filmmakers all the credit for this. The, that montage, absolutely, is so it, without being ironic, it perfectly encapsulates the '90s. Like, yeah, and I'm not saying that in a comedic way either. That is every camera angle, every camera trick, every filter that was being used compressed into like 20 seconds. Um, and when she says a Noxima commercial at the end of that. That got a huge laugh in the audience because everyone know everyone knew what a Noxima commercial was. If you watch Noxima commercials, I have no idea what a Noxima commercial is. Acne medication. But if you watch a Noxima commercial from 1993, that's what that is. Oh, and they okay. all starred Rebecca Gayhart, who was the Noxima girl. Yeah. And when you when when we're sitting in the audience, and I saw this opening weekend, and we're sitting in the audience, and I just remember them, her saying, "Do you think this is a Noxima commercial?" And we just like the whole audience like that was it that that sold the movie to us like we were on board because we got that they were presenting an, a movie that rode the line between being a '90s movie and parodying something that was currently ongoing. They were changing the game like they were commenting on popular culture in the first fifty seconds of film. And we weren't used to that. Like, ironic filmmaking didn't exist yet. Like, we were just at the tail end of, like, what the Clerks started. So we weren't expecting our Hollywood films to comment on popular culture. And, and I think it's interesting that Cher is saying to you, look, you're watching a film. You think it looks like a yep. commercial. And, and straight away, she's broken the fourth wall in a voiceover, which she kind of continues to do for the rest of the film. 
but like literally in the first few seconds she's like yeah this looks this doesn't look like a film like you're expecting a film does it Mm -hmm. and then the fact that she's like oh but i have a way normal life and it's it's and you're in such a at that point you're like there's no way that that statement is true there's no way that she has a normal life living in like you know her i mean her bedroom is gigantic and you only get a second of it like in this first minute but it looks huge and i'm like there's no way that this is normal. And I think that's something that the film does throughout is um, shares voiceover. A lot of the time will give you information, but it also is constantly, um, constantly ironic towards like the action that was going on. So she'll be talking about stuff and you know, she's not actually serious about what she's saying. Well, it's, it's the opposite. I am not sure. I totally agree with the last part of that statement about Cher not being serious about what she's saying. I think Cher is completely serious when she says she has a way normal life. All of her friends are rich. She, ha- I mean, until Ty, she has no friends who are even middle class. It's made very clear that like Amber and Summer and all these other girls and guys are also very wealthy. So I think the funny thing about Cher is that like Emma, her predecessor, uh, she has no self-awareness. So when she says, I have a totally normal life, she means it. Yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking of the screenwriter. Maybe Amy Heckling means... Is, is right. Put, is pres- a, there's an authorial definitely. voice in there saying, "Look, yeah. she's saying she's saying she has a normal life." But you, everyone here viewing this film, knows she doesn't have a normal life. But I want to springboard off what Shannon just said because Shannon said something uh, that I think is the key to the success of this film, and I think it ties in with what you said about Alicia Silverstone being perfectly cast, which is that when you have a character who is so wealthy and so privileged. Um, especially a crew of characters who are who are coming from places of privilege. If, if they're not honest, if they're not genuine characters, they they can be completely unlikable. And yeah. it's only because Alicia Silverstone is able to play Cher with an openness and an honesty, and not not a, there's no apology for who she is. There's no question about who she is. But she's also not overbearing. She's not she's not unlikably clueless. We like her because she is a genuine person, and she's not yeah. trying to be anything but what she is. I think, yeah. And if you don't have that, then you end up with ugly rich characters. Yeah. I think her best quality, again, like Emma, is that even when she falls and she makes mistakes, she always means well. You know, she's really mm-hmm. the thing that's that. I always latched onto with Clueless because, um, actually, I was only three years old when this movie came out, so I didn't have a chance <laughs> to experience it in theaters, and I don't really have a connection to any of the 90s culture in the movie, period. I actually can't really remember a time when I haven't seen this film. I don't remember watching it for the first time. It was just kind of always a part of my cultural landscape, I guess. But uh-huh. the reason that I always came back to it again and again and I think part of the reason that um, my younger brother allowed me to put it on versus other teen girl movies was that it's unlike other teenage movies it's uh, really good hearted you know most of the characters aren't malicious some of them are vain or Mm self-centered but it's not a mean movie you know Heather's is so cruel Mean Girls is just slews of girls being humiliated one after another on both sides and I think that Clueless is actually a super refreshing change from that to have a girl who's popular not because she looks down on other people but because she even before she takes on the task of bettering herself really she doesn't bear anyone 
any ill will. Right. And it's a break from that John Hughes-esque 1980s teen movie, which his movies could be affectionate towards teens, but they were also very critical while they were doing it. And John Hughes tended to portray adults as, as idiots and tended to portray, you know, do broad stereotypes in order to get laughs. And they weren't kind films. John Hughes films weren't weren't kind. They were they were they were acidic. And Clueless is anything but acidic. And so when I said like when I said that they sort of it changed the cultural landscape as far as like teen movies went. That, that's that's one of those things where it allowed it allowed a kindness to come into the characters. Also, I know everyone has high school horror stories, but I was like definitely not a popular girl in high school, kind of on the lower end of the social feeding chain, probably just being like, you know, a little theater nerd. But I think when I look back, most of the girls who were like really, really popular were popular because they were nice to people. Like, I don't necessarily agree with the teen movie thesis that thesis that you have to like shit on everyone to get to the top of the social order because i don't know that i necessarily saw that bear out i'm gonna say this um in terms of like other teen movies where there's a like um (laughs) a young blonde girl at the center uh another one that comes to mind is election and in that i don't i don't understand okay that's who i was in high school That, I, I don't understand why anyone would vote for Tracy Flick because she seems extremely unpleasant, but somehow she almost wins an election, and then obviously she does win the election. Spoiler alert for election. Well, yes, talk about talk about a movie that, through the filter of like a of a of an older of an older guy. But yeah, like you say, I mean, we only get like a few seconds of Alicia Silverstone, so um, you know, let's roll back just a tiny bit and let's talk about the opening song. Now, the original version was done by Kim Wilde, who I know intimately because she was a gigantic star over here in the 80s. Oh, when um, you said you knew her intimately, that makes it sound like you were <laughs> in a relationship. I'm like, oh, no, you know her it's possible. intimately. I mean, Darren I mean, knows I, a lot of people. I mean, I heard a lot of her songs on the radio growing uh-huh, up because uh-huh. she was... She was very popular over here. Sure. Um, and Kids in, Kids in America was like her first kind of uh, big hit. And the decision to kind of cover it, because the, the must cover version, it, it was done specifically for this film um, at the suggestion of the, um, the, the music supervisor, uh, Karen Ratchman, who with Amy Heckelin, they were both like, well, we want this song. And they did use the Kim Wilde version originally. And then they were like, but we want it a bit more 90s, you know, a bit more you know up to date yeah um and so they chose the muffs to do the to do the cover of it and and i think it's an interesting choice because um this i mean what's funny is the song kids in america was written by like two english guys and right. so it's so it's like how would they know what it's like to be and you know sung by an english girl like how originally it's like how would they know what it's like to be a kid in america it's but i think it's it's like an it's an interesting choice for the opening song because um, particularly that version, because it kind of sets you in a mood where you're like uh, kind of upbeat, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it kind of matches um, Cher in a way. That's what I've always felt. Like, yeah. it's, it seems like a song that she would enjoy. I th- Oh, I was going to say, I think even if you listen to like the lyrics and the tone of the song, it's like very driving forward. The lyrics about looking forward to something, like just stepping out of the house. You're sitting alone in your bedroom and it's like, I don't have to be like this. I'm going to go out and hang out with my friends. Like uh, like um, All Right by Supergrass, which is very much like a kids hanging out song that comes along later in the film. Yeah. 
I think yeah, uh, it's perfect for the opening in that sense because it has a feeling of anticipation with those first guitar strums that we hear after the weird sound effect, like picking up that exciting <laughs> tempo. I, I was just going to say I agree. It's in a it's a it's a great uh, song to propel you into the movie. But I also would think that uh, that Cher wouldn't have any idea she was listening to a cover. Oh no. no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I guess she she wouldn't listen to like a fifteen year old song. Like that's the thing is I right. don't think she would she would listen to songs that were essentially from before she was born. And she would um, take it completely at face value. She wouldn't she wouldn't find any trace of irony in the song. I don't think no. that Cher seeks out music. I think that music comes to her when she's at a party <laughs> and she hears it, or she's right. you know careening around in that white jeep that we see for the first time. And even just the sight of that white jeep got me excited for scenes to come. You know, a song comes on the radio. She's the sort of girl who's listening to you know the top forty, while Josh has what she calls later like the maudlin tunes of the university station. <laughs> Cher is looking yeah. for what's the most popular, whereas a character like Josh, who is her foil, obviously is looking for the obscure stuff. Cher would not have thought it was cool to name an artist and have her friend go, oh, I never heard of them. You know, like she is the antithesis <laughs> of a hipster. Right. She she doesn't collect albums. She collects singles. <laughs> yeah. And she probably has a ton of them. Uh, do you guys remember those things that came out in the early aughts? They were called like clip tunes. They were basically Tamagotchis that played like 45 seconds of a pop song. And they I gave do. them as like happy meal toys <laughs> at McDonald's. I could totally see Cher like having a couple of those down the line in a few years. That only play the song's hooks? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We had we had uh, we had things called uh, called uh, pocket rockers. Oh God, that sounds so sexual. Were, po pocket pocket rockers were little uh, little micro cassette players, and you would buy them uh, you would buy them at the toy store, and they would clip onto your pocket, and they would only play one song, <laughs> and you would buy like a little pocket rocker of like like I don't know like summertime blues and then you would just you would have that how much, you could play the song whenever you how wanted. much did you have to Look love a song <laughs> to buy a device that could only play that song yeah the, the commercial went <laughs> down on the corner out in the street pocket rockers are playing hear the music feel the beat so it was really on the edge the cutting edge of popular culture <laughs> Anyway, I'm heartbroken. Cher was probably swimming in pocket rock. No, I'm just heartbroken that I was a child in the '90s. Like, yeah, this is this is kind of breaking my heart because I should have been around for all of this instead of just toddling around collecting Beanie Babies. Um. <laughs> okay, now look, um, because there's only a tiny bit of Alicia Silverstone in this minute, uh, along with, I mean, obviously we've sort of seen her friends, but. We haven't really met them yet, so we don't get to talk about them. There's a lot but of amber in this minute, though. Yeah, I, I did notice that myself, and I'm like, that seems like a way too much amber to... Um, I, don't, I, I, well, don't, I don't know why, she, I I don't know why I, she's friends with them. I have, but I have a theory about why she's featured so much in this minute, because... Uh, you know, we don't see any of Dion, which was a problem for me just because I think she's such a great character. But I think the reason they chose yeah. to feature Amber so much is because if there is a true quote-unquote rich bitch in this movie, it's Amber. And all her outfits Amber. look yeah. like stuff if, like, Dr. Seuss wrote a high school book, you know? Right. She dresses like a who <laughs> from Whoville. So I think she's there to kind of, like, up the rich kid, like, silliness, crazy opulence, over-the-top factor. And that's why we see her yeah. so much at the 
beginning of the movie, but then her presence kind of all but fades out by the end. Oh, but she comes back for the TV show, don't worry. Of course. Uh, yeah. What else is that actress She's doing? all over no it. No offense, but what else <laughs> right. was she doing? Um, so, Well, I think this is a good point to say, first of all, um, Jane Austen is given no credit at all anywhere in this film in either the opening credits, which of course are very brief, or the closing credits, which um, I have gone through with a fine-tooth comb. And there's literally no mention of her at all. That's really... They don't bother to say that it's it's based on Emma. They don't, like it's it's really weird because um, uh, the minute zero that I recorded with the the four other hosts uh, the other day, when I said um, I was watching this film for the first time, I was at, I was at university. Um, I was at a friend's house. We'd had a party the previous night, um, and someone had rented this, and we were watching it. And about 20 minutes in, I was like, this seems a lot like the plot of Emma. And all the other hosts laughed at me because it seems obvious. But I said to them, there was no credit. So if you didn't know Emma, you would just think this is a very well-written teen movie. But if you know Emma, straight away you start to recognize elements from from that book, like from the opening minutes. Bear in mind... This movie, like I said, has been around basically my entire life. So I actually saw <laughs> Clueless and then read Emma. And so I kind of yeah. have a reverse perspective where I was reading Emma and I was like, this is exactly the plot of Clueless. You know, <laughs> like I, I knew I knew that Clueless was based on Emma, but no one had given me any idea of how incredibly close to the book it remains – I mean, they put it, obviously, in the 90s setting, which changes a few things majorly. Um, but yeah. overall, like, there are even lines that Cher says that are all but exactly what Emma says in dialogue. Like, in her scene with Elton where she goes, you are such a snob. That's exactly what she yeah. says to him after he rejects Harriet. Well, I'm going to say this. Um, uh, you know, Emma was published in 1813 – and it was published anonymously, as a number of novels written by women were at the time, although it was credited as from the author of Pride and Prejudice, uh, which was obviously a big hit. Jane Austen was a very successful novelist. Her books sold, you know, tons. Um, and when she came to write Emma, which I think out of her kind of six main novels, it is it is the one that is not like the others. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and she, the, the, the quote that everyone knows about that book is that Austen said... Uh, that she wanted to write a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. Um, and I think that that kind of could apply to Amy Heckling writing Clueless because, you know, the, I think maybe her aim was to make share someone who she would love and, and who, you know, the you know maybe teenage girls Cher's age would relate to, but who maybe other people might not enjoy. Um, I'm fascinated. So I don't think she succeeded in that kind of way because I think Cher is, you know... She's not – you can't hate Cher. She's, she's, you know, as the title says, she's a little clueless. But Well, that's true of uh, Emma as well. And I, yeah. I wanted to say I really – that quote intrigues me so much. And Emma is my favorite <laughs> Jane Austen novel because, you know, there's so much emphasis up to this day in our popular cultural zeitgeist that 
especially female characters need to be likable. I would say even more so than men. You know, we have all the oh, yeah. male anti-heroes of the golden age of television, your Tony Sopranos and Don Drapers and Walter Whites, but I think to this day, if a female character is in that position, she's way more likely to get harshed by viewers. So for Jane Austen to be attempting to step out of that box in the early 1800s, and obviously, you know, uh, people did relate to Emma and did grow attached to her and have affection for her, even though she's the worst judge of character ever. And she starts the book like <laughs> being like, I'm the best judge of character ever. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, I mean, I don't know, uh, Shannon, if you want to read the opening lines to, uh, to, to Emma, if you just change the first words to share Horowitz, it would exactly fit the description of the character. I also wanted to say real quick, though, that Emma Emma is in the third person, whereas Cher kind of, you know, breaks that fourth wall and talks directly to us, which I think does make a difference in kind of the feel of the narrative and also contributes to the fact that some academics would argue, and I might agree with them, that Jane Austen basically created the unreliable narrator with this book because she presents all of Emma's thoughts as fact until they're disproven. Emma, Chapter 1. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and a happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. And that definitely sums up Cher, <laughs> minus the age. Yes, yeah. It's pretty much all the same. I was going to say as well, like, the next the next paragraph sets out the uh, the exposition for, for Emma, um, where it states that she's the mistress of the house, and her mother had died too long ago for her to have an indistinct remembrance of her caresses. And I think that also, I mean, it's not revealed in this minute, but it is revealed, you know, kind of 10, 15 minutes down the line from now. That the same thing is true of Cher in that, um, you know, her father is a widower and she is essentially in charge of the house. Um, although there might be some discussion as to whether she just thinks she's in charge of the house and her father kind of just indulges her a little in that respect. Um, and, you know, uh, I think the interesting thing is that they Emma is um, has a sister, but Cher is an only child. Is there anything else that stands out for for you two from this uh, from this first minute? Uh, Not particularly. It's just it's a strong opening. It is. Yeah. I think I love that shot, which I you'll see is a, a screen cap used for clueless promotion a lot of Cher as she steps out of the store. It's the first solo shot of Cher where she's not in a group of her friends. And she has yeah, two I know the one. armfuls of shopping bags. And as she <laughs> yeah. tosses one over her shoulder, she raises her eyebrows and smiles in like a, what are you going to do expression? And that is like <laughs> the quintessential Alicia Silverstone expression. And it completely sets the tone for the character and for the rest of the film. You know, like she's not a stupid girl, but she's she is a very lighthearted one, let's say. Right. Th that is the look of the 1994 MTV Movie Award breakthrough and best villain winner, you know, right there. And I'll say that even though Amy Heckerling uh, was championing Alicia Silverstone from the beginning, from the this, she wanted the Aerosmith girl. Uh, the studio was banning about a lot of names, and one of the names that they were interested in for Cher was uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, no. who went on to yeah. play. 
Emma, Emma the next in a movie dreadful. that would not have gotten made had Clueless not been as successful <laughs> as it was. Uh, I hate that version of Emma. Everyone should watch the miniseries <laughs> that came out in 2009 with the lovely woman from The Hour and Johnny Lee Miller playing the two main characters and Michael Gambon as Mr. Woodhouse. Um, I did mm-hmm. want to say, too, I think, and I'm harping on Alicia Silverstone, even though she's barely, you know, barely no, doing it's... anything. <laughs> but I have to say, um, in terms of casting, when she was, you know, trying out for the role, she said she was concerned about not getting it because she didn't see herself as funny. She had never been allowed right. to be in a funny part before. And I think that actually works to her advantage because it keeps Cher from, you know, winking at her own actions. She plays yep. everything incredibly earnestly and sincerely. And Cher is a very earnest and sincere character. So I think that's what it is. I mean, I don't want to talk crap about female comedians because there are so many great comedic woman actors out there back in the 90s and now but i think actually getting a non-comedian in this role was a really strong choice kind of an unexpected one too yeah and for the sake of completeness i'm gonna say that that cgi paramount logo that we see was first used in front of the golden child the uh, eddie murphy vehicle oh in, thank god in, in 1986 I don't know how um, I would go on if I didn't know that. Well, I don't know I, which movie I've seen more, Clueless or The Golden Child. Oh, The Golden Child. Well, I figured I should mention it because uh, it, it had been co- covered recently by a podcast uh, that is a favorite of everyone. So This is true. Um, it was the clueless of its day. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna go for plugs here. Um, so, uh, Phil, I know you have a podcast to plug. I do have a podcast. I'm the host of uh, Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bear cast, which is all about the Berenstain Bears. Uh, if you want to find it, it's at berenstainbearcast.wordpress.com or on iTunes or wherever. And I am uh, on a show that is a proud member of the Darren Husted Galaxy of Stars. And that is Stage of Fools, which is a podcast about E's first scripted drama, The Royals. And my co-host and I, Zach Powers, pretty much just break down every episode and how completely absurd it is. Which, on a lot of occasions, is very absurd. Completely. Um. (laughs) Okay, so um, thanks very much for being my guests here on this very first minute of As If. Um, and I'm hoping you'll be able to join me tomorrow for the second episode. Can't wait. Of course. So we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of As If, the podcast all about Clueless. It's produced and edited by Darren Husted. This episode was hosted by me, Darren Hussid, with my guests, Phil Gonzalez and Shannon Camp. Like us on Facebook at As If The Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at As If underscore podcast. And follow us on Instagram, As If Podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes or the podcasting app of your choice. And please rate and review if you enjoy. Clueless is owned by Paramount Pictures. No infringement is intended or rights reserved. Copyright 2016.